0: You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. Chris Walker, Refine Labs. Thank you so much for being here, man. Clark, great to be here. This isn't my first time being the first guest on someone's podcast. So excited to be your first guest and ready to dive in.
1: Yeah, awesome, man. I reached out to a few folks and told them what I was doing and they were like, you got who? I'm sorry, what? Number one, you're coming out of the gate swinging. I was like, yeah, we best come correct here. So uh,
0: coming in hot.
1: Yeah, let's dive in. One thing that I was really thinking about while preparing for this is let's just get wild from the very beginning. Do you think that the dark funnel was created or discovered?
0: So I feel obligated to distinguish between the dark funnel, which I think was trademarked by a company called Sixth Sense versus Dark Social, which is a very different thing that was initially discovered in around 2015. And I personally evolved the definition based on how the world works today in 2021, 2022 and 2023. A lot of things have changed since 2015. So let's go through the details. Dark social is through the evolution and scale of the internet. B2B buyers are now research, discovering, and making other types of purchasing decisions that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't create account-level intent data. Those places can include social media platforms, content platforms like a podcast network, private communities in Slack and Discord or LinkedIn groups, third-party events like somebody comes to my event and then I shout out a company and they have no tracking or ability to that, and other things like that. So when companies look back at their attribution model, Um, they're seeing something entirely different than what their customer is experiencing due to these big measurement gaps. So that's dark social, typically where demand is created. Where is someone actually becoming educated and interested in buying something through the consumption of content, sharing of content, or collaboration with their peers or other people that they trust? And then you have the dark funnel, which is effectively using account level intent data to try and capture existing market demand based on some first or third party signal. It's a very different thing. Dark social does not create account level intent data. And the dark funnel is all built around account level intent data. And whether a company is actively buying or not creates a huge distinction in how you run your marketing and sales strategy. And so inside of the dark funnel, you get account level intent data. Typically, that'll create a quote unquote MQA. A lot of that data tends to be unreliable, whether it comes from a black box in a vendor or because companies don't fine tune the data and therefore stretch it out. And they get a lot of uh, false positive signals where it says accounts are in market where they really aren't because one person at IBM who's anonymous visited your website. So all of a sudden you think that you're going to sell your solution into IBM. It's not really how it works. But companies use the quote unquote dark funnel in the MQA as either an alternative or a hybrid model with the MQL. And so then you have a lead that you get through some type of sourcing contact information. And then you have an MQA, which is an anonymous account where then you go into a contact database and basically pull out five MQLs based on the buying group. In my view, it's close to the same thing. We'll see based on standardized performance data, whether the MQA is actually more effective or not. But when you think about it logically, really the only difference here is in the targeting. In an uh, account intent data, you have account filters built on that. But theoretically, you should do the same thing with your MQLs. You shouldn't have passed your sales team deals for accounts that don't actually fit your ICP account criteria. And so if you're operating both of these in the same way, you're basically just using a different way to source the contact information to make an outbound call or sequence. And so that's how I distinguish between, with some, a lot of extra detail, how I distinguish between dark social and, and dark funnel. I think that the dark funnel was created. It was created based on having a new way to get account de-anonymization and third-party intent data. I think that dark social was discovered it developed over time through the maturity of the internet. And then we figured out how to explain this phenomenon concept to people, but it was already happening.
1: I love that answer. And I I love that you make that distinction. As someone that's pretty well known for their commentary on these types of concepts, what or who or when, what do you think is to blame for that level of disconnect? You know, you talk about the handoff to sales, like, Are we just passing them something because we have to pass them something? You know, it's where does that come from?
0: The disconnect is driven through using an outdated operating model that was created somewhere between 2012 and 2017. That says that the way that you generate revenue is the first thing you do is you get a lead. Then you do stuff to that lead to try and get it to MQL. Then once it MQLs, you pass it to an SDR to call someone, then the SDR tries to get a meeting and passes it to sales in that meeting. And then they try and close that, sales tries to close that meeting in an assembly line that really doesn't match how the buyer buys and starts with a lead, not with creating demand inside of an account so that they actually are educated and want to talk to your sales team and want to buy. And so the operating model that companies use by design creates misalignment. Because marketing's optimizing for MQLs, SDRs get comped on SQLs or meetings, and then sales has to try and with all the stuff misaligned upstream, has to then try and close the deals where the marketing and SDRs are optimizing for a metric other than revenue. And so that's where the misalignment comes from. And then companies, whether they recognize it consciously or not, every single executive and the investors in those companies and a lot of the team all think in that same way. We need a lead. Then we are going to nurture that lead until they become an MQL and just moving in a linear funnel, which is not how companies and buying groups buy today.
1: Yeah, for sure. I've talked to a lot of folks about that internal struggle and trying to change mindsets like top down. In a lot of the accounts, a lot of the clients that you've worked with, how difficult are those conversations? What's worst case scenario? How bad have you seen someone just deeply ingrained in that model? What's your journey like, and what's Refine Labs' journey like
0: for trying to turn that around? What do you do? I mean, more than 99% of B2B companies probably still operate on this model. Many CMOs and other executives that I talk to acknowledge that the model isn't working, that it's broken, that it's causing sales and marketing misalignment, and things like that. But nobody's proposed a new documented formal model in a way that executives in the entire company can then ingest, say, hey, this is smarter than what we're doing right now. We're going to change the way we think and operate to this new model. We're planning to release our proprietary model based on the experience and executing with more than 250 B2B SaaS companies over the past four years. That experience and data is far more tactical, far more practical, far more detailed than what a serious decisions would do when they advise companies and give them advice, but don't actually implement things in real life. And so We believe that our company is in a very advantageous seat to drive this by connecting the operating model to revenue strategy, to a data model, and then downstream to tactical execution. And my company operates in all those different places, which allows us to create a feedback loop that says, okay, we executed this across a lot of companies. We collected the data in a standardized way. What can we learn from this data that allows us to operate the operating model and the data model, which then drives new revenue strategies? We believe that that data flywheel that we get from insights and other standardized data creates a way that we can truly help a lot of companies in a new and unique way.
1: I hear flywheel more and more. Are we going flywheel? Are we going funnel? What does that look like? And do we need yet another name for something that we as marketers do? Or is it just a better way of explaining it to those that don't understand?
0: When I talk flywheel, I'm not talking about whether it's a funnel or a flywheel. I think that HubSpot was clever in their positioning of a of a flywheel and it's great. And whether you visualize it in a funnel or a flywheel, I don't think really matters. The core concepts remain generally the same, except all you're doing is saying that now your customers are going to advocate, which they should be doing anyway. And so like when I talk about a data flywheel, I talk about us collecting insights from a ton of companies that then bring us back fast learnings that one singular company or one RevOps person or one CMO would never get because of our scale, which then allows us to learn 20, 50, 100 times faster than a normal company would, which then allows us to create advice and things. And why people think that our insights and frameworks and things like that are innovative is because of the data flywheel. It's because we execute with a lot of companies and we get accelerated learnings and pattern recognition and now we're taking that to the next level with a standardized data model, which will allow us to calculate core KPIs across a lot of different companies in a standardized way, allow them to benchmark their performance against a group of their aggregated peers based on certain types of dimensions like company size or pipeline generation or things like that, that I think we need to shift the conversation in B2B right now. It's purely on attribution. Yep. <laughs> we need to shift the conversation, especially in marketing, we need to shift the conversation to revenue team KPIs. Close one revenue, standardized hero pipeline generation, all bound sales velocity, blended marketing ROI against standardized hero pipeline and revenue. Those are the metrics that matter. What are the trends around those over the past six quarters? If those things are going down, which for many companies they are right now, then how can you look at your attribution report and say that everything in your marketing is working? It's not. It's working way less than it did six quarters ago but companies only look at attribution, ignore KPIs or use the wrong KPIs like MQL and cost per lead and things like that, which are marketing metrics, not revenue team metrics. We need to elevate the marketing profession to be integrated into the revenue team and be optimizing for revenue team level metrics, not MQLs and things like that.
1: Yeah, I've had a few conversations recently where folks are thinking that their velocity is just completely wrong. And it is in a sense, however, They're not necessarily finding out that it's wrong. They're also finding out what it actually is, and they just didn't know what it is. So what are some of those things that people can look at that will not necessarily prove them wrong in a sense, but what are some of the big eye openers that people should just be looking for if they're looking to audit, you know, if they're in the middle of the existential marketing crisis right now?
0: Yeah, so let me cover a couple of different areas here. First off, there are confounding variables in this calculation for every single company because they don't have a standardized definition of pipeline and pipeline is one of the key inputs to calculating overall sales velocity. And so we just analyzed the company a couple of weeks ago. They thought they created $152 million in pipeline last year. And we calculated $66 million based on our standardized definition using a win rate metric to determine when it's qualified, not a subjective deal stage, which equates to $90 million in extra pipeline. If they even calculate sales velocity, they put $152 million into the calculation instead of $66 million. And they increase their sales velocity by 3x because they don't use a standardized definition. And so another misconception is that sales velocity is the same as sales cycle length. It's definitely not. Sales velocity includes win rate, ACV, pure pipeline generated, and sales cycle length. You combine those four metrics, and what's happening to most companies over the past six quarters, win rates are going down. They continue to inflate pipeline. As win rates keep going down, pipeline becomes more and more inflated. Sales cycles are extending, and all three of those metrics are if you calculate it in a standardized way, or pulling down sales velocity to a level where it's 20% of what it was six quarters ago. And that's something that a lot of companies are feeling right now. What are they doing to adjust to that? They're spending a lot less money on marketing. They're starting to reduce the other costs in their go-to-market team to try and keep CAC in line. But eventually, you got to figure out how to pull those metrics back up. Like, the win rates are going down significantly for many companies. And so... And so a lot of companies aren't even looking at that metric. It's one of the most important go-to-market metrics to scale net new acquisition. It's probably the most important metric in terms of predicting of the scale of net new customer acquisition. And for most companies, it's been going in the wrong direction for way too long. And I think that, like, yeah, there's an economic part of it. But I think that over this period of time, more and more companies are challenging, why do we still do go-to-market this way? Why do we still look at these metrics? Why do we still use these tools? Why do we allocate between sales and marketing and SDRs that type of budget between those departments? Is that even the right way to look at our budget anymore? And I think when there's a lot of downward pressure, which there's a fuckload of download pressure going on in the market right now, it creates innovation and a lot of new ways of thinking. And I think the B2B market needs that.
1: Yeah, B2B in particular. Yeah, it's, I mean, the things you see nowadays, the conversations you hear, it's kind of weird. You know, do you think it's a conversation of, everyone having a bunch of bad ideas or everyone having zero ideas. You know, we talk about like, yes, there's got to be some sort of monumental shift in the way we look at things,
0: easier said than done. It's not bad ideas. It's identifying what part of the revenue strategy process do these ideas fit into. And all of the ideas, and especially the ones shared on LinkedIn or at a webinar or at an event or something like that, pretty much always fall into either revenue strategy, tech and tools, or tactical execution, many of them in tactical execution. And the problem is that all the strategy, the tech and tools, and the tactical execution are built around lead MQL, SQL, SQO. And so somebody gives you advice on how their LinkedIn ad strategy is working so good, and they're measuring the success of that based on cost per MQL on LinkedIn ads. And you're think, wow, like they just said, it's working. It must be working for me. Let's go copy that and spend hundred K a month with their strategy. And the strategy is, is built around the operating model. And so if you change the operating model, and then you say what we determine whether or not this works is based on sales velocity, hero pipeline generation, close one revenue and marketing ROI, then it would deem most of the advice given here to be ineffective and not working. It's all built around the KPIs that you measure and optimize for. So the ideas that are given are great ideas if you want to get cheap, high-volume MQLs. (laughs) Sure. And I don't think that we want that anymore. And so it's really about changing further upstream the operating model and the core KPIs that you measure, which then downstream will force changes to strategy, tech and tools, and tactical execution around new metrics. That's why we change metrics is to change behavior. And that's what we need to do. Yeah.
1: There's a lot of those conversations happening on LinkedIn, obviously, and you see more and more where marketers on LinkedIn are looking for almost step-by-step advice, like, tell me exactly what to do. You know, the conversation seems to steer away from more nebulous strategy conversations. It seems like everybody has a pretty clear grasp on, okay, we need to at least start moving in this direction. However, what that tends to lead to is a lot of information that gets lost in the LinkedIn marketing echo chamber, which I think is making us all dumber. How can you, I hate the term "break through the noise, but if you're getting marketing advice on LinkedIn, how do you know what's bullshit?
0: It's a massive problem inside of the market right now that most people are not aware of, driven by the massive increase and ease of distribution of content. So anyone can boot up their LinkedIn profile. They worked at one company and that company was HubSpot or Snowflake. So they get a lot of cred by putting that X Snowflake in their title. And then they talk about some of the stuff that helped Snowflake get a ton of MQLs. And because Snowflake was successful, and probably not because of the MQLs, they're going to talk about that. And other people are going to say, wow, that person worked at Snowflake. Snowflake was such a successful company. Let's go do that, at our Series A company. And it definitely doesn't work. And the reason that people do, why marketers and mostly marketers, but I think across the board, are looking for step-by-step guidance is because there's no science and data around it. So there's no confidence and clarity about how to make decisions. And so it's all based on someone's experience and opinion. And therefore you need to be able to understand exactly their type of experience in a way that gives you the quote unquote confidence and clarity that you need at a detailed level. When you look at how other industries and places like this do this is actually use scientific principles. They have standardized measurement. They have standardized methods. They operate those methods across a lot of different patients or samples. They collect data and they say, if you do this with this, you will get this result based on statistics. And that creates confidence for physicians and other medical practitioners and other people in the scientific community to do things and know that they're gonna get a specific outcome based on science and data. B2B go-to-market teams, B2B go-to-market generally have always been built on experience and opinion. Typically the experience and opinion of agencies, consultancies, and analyst firms. And the over time, over the past five years, the evolution of RevOps and the data and infrastructure and technology layer that's been created over the past five years allow us to now use science and data to inform clear and confident go-to-market decisions in a way that we weren't able to just five years ago. So I'm excited to pioneer this because it's generally the way that you advance science. It's generally the way that you create innovation and advancement and breakthroughs. And we've had no breakthroughs in B2B go to market in over 10 years. Yeah, quite some time. The way that you create breakthroughs and you have cancer survival rates go from 30% to 70% over a period of time is by using science and data. So I think that we'll be leading the charge there. And I think a lot of other vendors and partners will join in because it's logical and it makes a lot of sense. I tend to
1: agree with that. One thing I worry about, though, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on is who's going to win the race between the go-to-market teams trying to dig deeper in terms of data and, let's say, privacy laws combined with consumers that are getting smarter by the minute and actively want to hide from you as much as humanly possible.
0: With the privacy policies and things like that, data is getting harder to collect, right? Like attribution on Facebook was super simple in 2017. It was showing huge results. And now attribution because of iOS 14 and other privacy advancements is not that simple. And the channel probably still works just as effectively. But because it doesn't have the quote unquote attribution, most B2B companies don't ever invest their part subjectively, oh, Facebook's not for professionals. But then also because of the lack of attribution, which LinkedIn has been able to close a little bit, which is why a lot more budget goes to LinkedIn due to more granular attribution compared with the subjectivity of saying, oh, I'm like executives are going to use LinkedIn more than Facebook. But when it comes down to it, again, there's a difference between attribution and key performance indicators. Key performance indicators tell us, are we on or off track against the key business outcomes that we're trying to drive? Most companies will use lead MQL, SQL, SQL one. Attribution is a process where we look at the investments and we try and use data to determine which investments should we continue, should we cut, should we deprioritize and things like that in order to accelerate growth and optimize ROI. They're two very different things. Most B2B companies blend them together. And they use attribution as the primary method to say whether or not we're on or off track to our goals or what's working. But if you look at the KPIs, the KPIs might tell an entirely different story. And so I think we need a more balanced look between KPIs and attribution between companies and aligning on standardized KPIs. Companies in their PL use gap accounting principles. Top line revenues created the same way. Things that are below the line are created the same way. And anyone can look at that and say, okay, I can understand what's going on in this business. And over time, I think that executives should be demanding that they are able to look at their revenue data at that type of granular way as well.
1: Yeah. Over the course of your career, how many shifts or n- the need for a shift in mindset and approach have you seen? How do you navigate these types of waters? You know, we we as marketers try to shake things up a lot. You know, people cross-functionally hear that about the latest strategy, the latest tactic. Regardless of the efficacy of becoming more self aware as marketers, can some of the reluctance to adopt be attributed to are we the marketers that cried wolf? Is there distrust there? You know, it, when we're talking about consumers being and buyers being in different places where attribution can't find them, yes, obviously we're trying to work towards that goal, but how can we instill confidence when we can't really back it up in the way that? They want us to quite yet, I'll say.
0: Throughout my entire career from 2012 until now, there has only been one shift that's needed, and it's still not been made. It was obvious in 2016 when I was working for a B2B company and we had 45 sales reps and 30 CSMs around the country, and our sales velocity was super low, and our ROI on go-to-market investment was super low. Our sales cycles were three times longer than they should have been. We didn't have a top-level digital strategy because of the way that we measured the metrics and KPIs. And it was very obvious at that time that a shift was needed, and it's continued to be that way for the past seven years, since 2016 until now. The issue is that companies don't make the shift. They complain about their demand waterfall model. We see a bunch of people talking about how there's a lot of sales and marketing alignment, about how MQL is not the right thing to measure, so now let's an MQA instead, which is basically the same thing. And so there's been... When people think about these like sort of breakthrough things like, oh, now we're going to use LinkedIn ads or now like we're going to do this type of event or something like that. You have to think about what are they trying to accomplish inside of that event? You have to think about what are they trying to accomplish for those LinkedIn ads? And it's not generating a standardized value in pipeline. And it's rarely generating close one revenue. Most companies up until like three years ago hadn't connected marketing data with sales data. So they saw 50,000 MQLs and they thought marketing's doing great. We're getting a $50 MQL, never tracked it down the funnel, never looked at overall pipeline creation until recently, if they even do. And then getting 50,000 MQLs became the goal of marketing. And then once you take the step and say, okay, let's track the 50,000 MQLs. Let's track how much sales team or SDR team time was spent chasing around these MQLs. It's not just the cost of the MQL. It's all the time that SDR spend on it and all the headcount and tools that they use. Then we have to think about our sales team who's spending time with these people. And then we can look at it overall and determine, are these MQLs the right thing to get? And what we typically find, and actually what we always find, is that there's a subset of MQLs, typically 5%-ish, that are the ones that have high sales velocity and actually close and generate strong ROI, which are the people that declare intent to buy from you. People that say, hey, I want to talk to your sales team about buying this now. And then the other 95% of the MQLs are people that didn't ask to buy and are mainly used to just pump up metrics for an MQL dashboard and keep their SDRs busy and things like that. And when you connect it the whole way, you see those types of insights and you say, wow, these 47,500 other MQLs to win four deals is a total waste of time and money. In your experience, who's usually the first one to notice
1: that internally? In my experience, it's been someone that's been in the trenches that's, you know, whether it's someone down the line in RevOps or Demand Gen, you name it, a practitioner who is in the weeds in that data, how do they take that upstream? You know, I think of the movie, like The Big Short, the analyst that he's the one that sees the entire housing market coming and has to change the country. That's a tough conversation to have. How do you approach that?
0: It's typically not the director of Demand Gen or the Demand Gen leader. And so what I find is that either the CMO and or the RevOps team have a suspicion that these types of things aren't working. And the reports that they get from their media team and their demand gen team and their agency using influenced revenue or a very generous type of attribution model show that all the things are working great. And then so then they say, okay, well, we don't know what to do. We don't think that it's working, but we don't have any data to show that it's not working. So I guess we'll just keep doing the same thing that we're doing. And eventually they hire My company who looks at the data in an entirely different way and shows them the results of what we see and the response is, yeah, we thought that was happening all the time, but we never looked at the data this way to show it. This makes a lot of sense to us. The reality is that the people have a suspicion that it's not working and they might even know it's not working, but they don't know how to look at the data in a way to tell the story to drive organizational change. That specifically goes for RevOps actually, which is one of the core things that that function needs to be able to do. They need to be able to look at data, present a story around it that moves a company to make like large organizational change and move the business forward. Um, and so I'm looking forward to more people in that function stepping up and driving organizational change using data.
1: Yeah, for sure. We've talked a lot about um, dark social, and I've heard a lot of your commentary on that. How difficult is it going to be to figure out where everyone is going? For example, my industry is cybersecurity, okay? So I look at it the same way a penetration tester would, right? I'm trying to find vulnerabilities to exploit and I'm getting into private Discord servers full of security and things like that, you know, trying to make my way, you know, the CD underbelly of Reddit and whatnot. What are some gems that you could take away from that that might be able to shift some of those internal conversations for your RevOps team where you're saying, okay, let's, you know, we think our brand is this, for example, however, our brand is actually what everybody's saying behind our back. And here on Reddit, here's what everybody's actually saying. Like, can we do something around that? You know, what does that exploratory
0: motion look like? So to be clear, this stuff is not hard to figure out. It's just hard to figure out based on the best practices that companies use today that include no primary market research. And nobody wants to hear my answer to this, but I'm going to said it for five years. I'm going to continue to say it. The way to figure this out is to do primary market research with your customers. Market research surveys, self-reported attribution, win-loss analysis, individual interviews with prospective customers or people that are not in a buying mode right now, and then using those insights paired with revenue KPIs and performance data to make strategic decisions there was a survey that came out on LinkedIn today. I, I don't know how many marketing people they asked, but there was quite a few people in the survey and 62% said that they uh, do hardly ever do primary customer research for their go-to-market. And to me, it's more like the companies I interact with is more than 67%. Sure, their product team does to be able to build the product, but nobody on the go-to-market team is doing primary market research and using that as an input to drive the go-to-market strategy and also to be an input on what program should we invest in and what should we do. And when you get those insights from customers, most executives don't think it's valuable because they've been trained over time that it should be automated and technology and we should have touch point, it should be processed in the CRM and things like that. But it's hard to deny that what your customers are telling you is not the most valuable thing out there. It's hard to say that. And pairing those two things together in order to do the science, we need revenue data, and we need customer data, and we need both of the customer data collected as a primary market research method to be clear, and then pairing those together to revise and enhance the overall go-to-market strategy. You ask people, like I sit on first sales calls, I look at my LinkedIn DMs, I look at our self-reported attribution data, people tell me that they hear about us on the podcast and they've been listening to it for three years, they've been watching my content on LinkedIn for three years, and now they want to talk to me, they'll talk about a specific video that I posted, I know that our shit is working. And when other companies do self-reported attribution and their podcast sucks, and they don't post anything valuable on LinkedIn, and they do stuff and they get online research or search or friend, and they don't think that they don't get anything valuable, it actually is super valuable. It's telling you that your demand creation programs are not effective. Or direct. If the programs were effective and your buyers had affinity to them and it was educating them and pulling them in to buy your stuff, then they would tell you. And if you ask them, in multiple ways that give you confidence. You don't just have to ask on the form of your demo request. You can ask them in a bunch of different other ways, and it doesn't have to be just, how did you hear about us? It can be, who do you think is the market leader? Where did you hear about this company? You know, How do you make a buying decision this way? Where do you go? What are the trusted sources of information that you use to decide on what cybersecurity solutions to purchase or consider? And you can get that type of data and insight, which then point you exactly to where you should be marketing and advertising.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was having a conversation recently where a peer of mine asked me, what's it going to take for marketers to enable them to be human centric? And I said, quite frankly, we're already enabled to be human centric. We're just not doing it. So internally, who's spearheading that motion of doing that level of research? Who does that live with?
0: I think that somebody in the go-to-market team needs to be effectively the head of strategy. And I think if you're paired as an evangelist and the head of strategy, you become one of the most valuable people in the company, but it's very rare. Whereas an evangelist, you're pointing out the point of view. You immediately get feedback from the audience, just like I do. So I'm able to refine the message rapidly. I'm able to know what's working and what's not. And then I'm also able to then use those insights to devise both the go-to-market strategy and the product strategy for my company. And so I think that the CMO falls into the space of who should be leading this. Um, I think the CMO should be deeply connected with, when I say customers, I mean the market. I mean all prospective customers that haven't paid you yet and customers that currently pay you and understanding the entire market, being able to evangelize a point of view. Maybe it's not the, if you sell the CISOs, maybe the CMO is not the evangelist, but somebody's got to be able to collect all those insights back repackage the message and then formulate the strategy. When I was a B2B marketer in 2016, it was on my quarterly scorecard to visit three customers on site in person every quarter. So and our company prioritized that and it was super smart and we developed way better strategies about what to do as a marketing manager or as a marketing director by those touch points. And I think that if you actually value and prioritize it, put it on somebody's scorecard is important evaluate their promotions and other things like that based on how customer-centric they are, I think that would be a couple of ways to make it happen.
1: With budgets being cut, do you see having things like an evangelist or somebody that partners really closely with either CSM or or even product to dive into this? Is that a hard sell?
0: An evangelist strategy when executed properly and effectively is the highest ROI go-to-market investment that you could ever make. My content and output drives ten, fifteen million dollars in business every year, and I put four to six hours a week into it. It's way higher ROI than an individual rep or a CMO or something like that. And so, but the problem is that most companies don't execute it well. The content is product centric, not customer centric. The distribution sucks. It's packaged in an ebook or put on on the website or behind a gated form. It's not valuable to their target market. There's no insights that are feeding what they talk about based on their target market. And they're not distributing it in a way that people are consuming. And so no wonder the podcast and LinkedIn aren't working for them. It's really hard as an organization to unlock that, especially if you obsess around at- digital touchpoint-based attribution and MQLs. It basically prevents you from doing it. And like I mentioned before, my belief estimate is that 99% or more of companies still operate around MQLs and digital touchpoint attribution. And so 99% of companies are going to fail in executing some of these strategies properly. Until you change your KPIs and your measurement model, it's going to show that new things that operate against new metrics are not working. Um, and so I think that's what holds people back a lot. In the beginning, when you're starting to
1: talk to folks about this mindset, how much of your own data? We see LinkedIn content. We see the YouTube shorts. We, you know, how much of that data have you leveraged in some of the conversations as opposed to client data, for example.
0: We're a service tech enabled service company, which is quite a bit different and our ACVs are quite high and it's a lot different than going to market with a 30 to 150 K SaaS tool to a large market. And so we test everything on ourselves so that we understand how it's working. We build different automation. We use it on our own reporting. We validate that this would be valuable for other companies to do compared to what they do right now as the best practice. So we use ourselves as a testing ground. But when it comes to how we reflect data back to SaaS companies, it's all based on the experience and data that we collect with all of the companies that we work with that are similar, sell similar budget allocations, Similar programs and tactics, even like almost every company splits their budget in a very similar way, even though they think every company is different. Take the budget, put like 30 to 40% in headcount, and then take the rest over and split it between digital and events. And that's what companies basically do. And so it feels like everyone is so different, but honestly, most companies operate in close to the exact same way, which is why the data ends up being very consistent. And so then we see the patterns and trends, we're able to communicate those back to companies based on real data they can then go and look at their own data and see a similar result. And they're like, wow, this makes sense. I now trust this person because they knew that this was going to happen. Now that I did it, I see the same thing. So it creates a lot of uh, trust and credibility.
1: Yeah, for sure. Steering in a, in a different direction here, if you're a marketer that's in the job market right now, how important is it to align yourself with revenue? And are the days of being measured on anything other than revenue over?
0: I think it depends who you're interviewing with. There's many companies out there that want to know how you're going to get them so many MQLs and SQLs. It's not a company that I want to work for, but if you're a marketer looking for a job, most, a majority, more than 50% of companies are looking for someone to do that, to run a singular tactical program and get high volume, cheap MQLs or SQLs. And so, and I did this, I was in an interview in 2019 i told the story about how we were so revenue focused and we used all these different things we thought about creating demand and capturing demand and we generated so much more pipeline and revenue and sales velocity by using this strategy and the company was like we don't want to do this stuff this isn't how we just want to be able to get meetings for our sales team you said you only got 100 meetings even though you won 50 of those 100 meetings into deals like we need a thousand meetings to hit our revenue target and so there are it's about identifying companies that have a similar aligned mindset based on how the world and buyers buy today, how the world works and buyers buy today. And you need to have a shared view with the CMO and ideally the CEO, depending on what level you're being hired into, that allowed you to operate and do your best work that is aligned to what those people are looking for. So I think it's more about finding the company match as a marketing hire, like obviously, like talking about how you're focused on revenue doesn't matter that much if the company is focused on MQLs. And a lot of people for that matter, a lot of marketers talk about how they're focused on revenue. But all they do is get a bunch of MQLs and then just track them to revenue. It's a very different thing to optimize for an MQL. And then just hope that some of those convert versus optimizing for revenue and then changing how you define an MQL or whether you even measure an MQL, what point you optimize for will drive a lot of different things downstream.
1: Curious if you have any of those kind of silver bullets, you know, those I always tell people that are looking for a job, have that conversation up front, have it in as much detail as you possibly can. However, you know, it goes without saying that some marketers have ended up in situations where they're told it's green pastures. Everything's great. We're super on board with whatever you want to do. And then into the quarter comes around, everybody starts sweating. And then we kind of revert back to old ways. You know, are there some silver bullets that you can ask or, have a conversation about up front that can help you dodge some of those bullets?
0: I think you're more likely to dodge some of those bullets as an executive. I think that you're probably unlikely to get exposed to that stuff as an individual contributor or a middle manager. But even executives, VPs and CMOs get sold a dream and then three months into it, they're getting, things are changing and they're getting forced to go back to the same dumb shit they were doing before that they know doesn't work. And so I don't think that there necessarily is a silver bullet. I think that you can see indicators based on it. Some of the indicators would be show me your latest board deck. Let me see the board deck. What are we reporting to the board? What's important for marketing? How are we looking at the data? How is the budget being allocated? You could look and see if the company has a dark social strategy. If they have a dark social strategy, that means that they fundamentally think about attribution differently. If the CEO is posting on LinkedIn five times a week, if the company has one of their executives running a podcast, if they're doing a bunch of other you know, activity like that, if they have a good presence on LinkedIn, those are things that a company wouldn't do if they thought like a typical company thinks about attribution and KPIs. So that becomes an interesting green flag. I think those are probably the two main ones to look at. And then even if you do clear those two things, it's very possible that companies regress. Some of our customers do the exact same thing. They work with us for six months. They see forward progress for whatever reason whether their goals are getting bigger or now their, you know, valuations underwater because of, you know, valuations have gone down or whatever. Now they think that they need to make some shift back to what feels safe, which is actually way less safe and companies regress. And then it happens.
1: I've seen that. And one of the questions that I've asked in a couple of interviews over my career is, is the goal to build a long-term sustainable growth engine and build a recognizable brand or is it to be acquired? What have you seen on that front? Like, do you have to have conversations that high level if, if you're in the VP executive
0: range? Uh, it's interesting. I was talking about this yesterday. I had a differing opinion with someone. But even if you want to be acquired, you need to build a company as if you're not going to be acquired. And when you do that, it makes you much more attractive for an acquisition because you build, you build a sustainable company for the market. Companies that go into it saying, oh... These three vendors are the only three that would ever buy us. Let's build our product for them, not for our customer. And you make a lot of bad decisions. So every company should be building as if they're a standalone business forever, which leads you to be a much better acquisition target for those reasons.
1: Yeah, gotcha. If you were going to build a team from scratch right now, what would it look like? You know, we talk about an evangelist and these different roles and uh, different tactics to use, you know, it partnering with uh, anybody that can help us with research. You know, What does the team of yesterday look like and what does the team of tomorrow look like?
0: I'm just spitballing here, so this hasn't been fully thought out, but I'll come up with a couple of ideas on the fly. So I think that the evangelist should be the chief strategy officer at the same time. I think that you should be doing both of those. That would be like the seat that I fall into right now. You would have way less sales rep headcount. It would be much more focused on demand creation, both through organic and paid. And then when you don't have an MQL conversion rate of 0.1%, which means your sales team or SDRs talk to 1,000 people to win one deal, and that conversion rate's 8%, which is 80 times better, which means you need 80 times less leads to be able to hit the same revenue target because you drive a lot of efficiency. You don't need 50 reps to close that level of deals. Every rep then has much larger quota attainment. They make more money. They're way more productive. It works for everybody. And so I think companies once they figure it out and they have a new operating model, will begin to shift more budget into demand creation, which then moves their target customer in market where it can be captured and converted into revenue. And they'll have a much more balanced overall budget. I think chief strategy and evangelists become a huge one. Um, I think that lowering sales headcount based on the amount of demand that's created in the market, which allows sales teams to actually hit quota, which hasn't happened in so fucking long. Sales reps are not hitting quota. Most are not. Most companies are not hitting their revenue targets. Most companies are down forecasting Q3 and Q4. And so I think that we need to basically rebalance it overall. I could spend more time thinking about what are the exact people. I would also be investing both. I think I would use a hybrid talent model for RevOps. I think I would use a combination of internal and external people, external people that benefit through the experience of working with hundreds of companies over time. And individual people that benefit from the experience and understand the company strategy and the customer very well and pairing those two things together to get a better outcome. And so I think generally, I think companies will move more to a hybrid talent model for that reason. You get the best of both worlds. We're already seeing it with freelancers and consultants and influencers that are working with a lot of people for a pretty hefty price to to spend five or 10 hours a month with a company but the value that they provide is not based on the number of hours they work. It's based on all their experience and the way that they help you avoid risk and they help you give more confidence in your decisions. And so I think that more companies will begin to value that level of thing where typically they're hiring McKinsey or an agency for 700 bucks an hour for McKinsey, 150 bucks an hour for an agency, which only incentivizes your partners to take a longer time to give you the exact same outcome. Thinking about someone that can inject new strategy and thinking into your company based on an hourly value, I think is a, a really poor way to look at it.
1: Yeah, I would agree. When we talk about different skill sets and that level of hybrid talent brings up a really interesting conversation. And I, I know this is not exactly what you meant by it, but it, it did spark kind of a, huh. In the current climate, particularly in B2B, and given you know the conversation we've had about you know, marketers needing to align themselves with revenue, or, you know, partner with customer service to do that, those deep dive research motions. Are sales people
0: currently better marketers than marketers? Probably not. But like, who am I to say? Like, I don't think so. But like, Marketers practicing marketing all the time, you do see the occasional sales rep that becomes a great marketer. And the reason they do is because they realize that being a great marketer gets them more revenue and better quota attainment. It's not complicated. The thing I love about salespeople is smart salespeople will find the path of least resistance to hitting their goals and making money. And it's amazing because it creates, makes people that are smart will be able to figure that type of stuff out. I love that. When it comes to marketing, most marketing teams can't align to revenue. They can't because if they did, It would show the company that most of the things that they're doing don't align to revenue. And if So we go into a company and we just shift the definition of pipeline to what it actually matters, which means that we hit a stage where we win 25% of those deals. And just shifting that eliminates most of the marketing programs that are able to hit an MQL or an SQL or a stage one opportunity. The metrics actually force marketers to do the wrong things, right? If you have an MQL target, you need to get 100,000 MQLs you're gonna have to spend your whole budget and all your time figuring out how to get your MQL costs from $50 per MQL to $47 per MQL. And none of that is productive.
1: I love that answer because that's pretty much exactly where I was going to that. You know, there's such a weird conversation going on of, about defining those things like pipeline and revenue and marketers hearing a lot of mixed messages and not actually knowing that what they've been told that they're supposed to hit or generate is not even the actual thing that the people dictating what that should be actually is you know how often do you see that and like what does that therapy session look like internally you know
0: there's been an evolution in marketing where in the 2000s it was all like sales was creating demand capturing demand and converting demand mostly in a field sales model maybe they started using sd inside sales sdrs but most companies were still field sales And then at some point, like HubSpot's technology came out and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, now marketers need to be focused on revenue and marketers need to be able to prove the ROI of the things that they're doing and things like that. And so for the past seven to 10 years, the vendors that have built the products that do the measurement have built the products around, how do I help a marketer prove the ROI of the things that they already do, as opposed to how do I give the company a standardized, clear view of their data that everyone can agree on and use that to make strategic decisions. And it is entirely two different things. The products get built to prove the ROI of the things that marketers already do. And so it's easy to try and figure out how do we get one contact at one account to download one of our eBooks on content syndication. And then we can say we influence that whole $150,000 deal, even though they downloaded the eBook two and a half years ago. And then the tactics that happen after that appease the technology. They know that content syndication and lead forms and performance marketing and other types of email and other types of digital touch points are the easiest things to measure using those systems. So what do all the marketing mixes look like at B2B companies? All the stuff that's the easiest to measure. If you actually look back in history and analyze how we got here, How we got here, and that's why Influenced Revenue exists, it's it's built to prove the ROI of the things people already do, not to help companies make strategic decisions. And when you break those two things out and you say, one, we need a data set to make strong, smart, data-informed decisions, and two, we need a data set to understand what is the ROI of our activities and the things that we're doing so we can allocate budget to drive higher ROI... And you separate those two things into two conversations, you come up with very different outcomes. And so that's what I'm effectively recommending companies do, um, but generally get blended together. Yeah, so that's that's how I see it.
1: Yeah, so, you know, let's say hypothetically, if a company were looking to kind of reverse engineer that and provide an alternative in some means, you know, what does that look like? And how do you even begin to, I guess, reverse engineer that
0: and present a different way of thinking. I think that up to this point, and even people that ask me are like looking for a mat, like what's the next tool that I can buy to be able to measure our, you know, top of funnel or our dark social or so people even come to me and it's they're predisposed to look for a tool. And the answer is not that simple. And you actually have to do hard work and you need to be customer centric and you need to be deeply understanding of those customers and collect those insights. So that's one part. And then another part is having a shared standardized way that you look at the data in your company to make strategic decisions so that if the CMO looks at it and the CRO looks at it and the CFO looks at it, they all know what's going on. They're all looking at the same view and they would all come to generally the same conclusion. That's what we need. And so I think that's where it goes. And then it's also splitting KPIs and attribution. KPIs need to be the most important thing we measure across our entire revenue team. The KPIs matter. Attribution becomes another layer down that helps us understand how do we allocate investments. And when it comes to attribution, we really need to be looking at attribution between demand creation, demand capture, and demand conversion entirely separately. And we should be looking at the budget scrutiny in that way too, instead of saying marketing spent 10 million and only got this much sourced pipeline or only influenced this much revenue. We should really be, in my opinion, breaking the budget between demand creation, demand capture, and demand conversion. We're going to start running those analyses for companies and be able to start to figure out what is the current allocation of the budget. My hypothesis is that companies spend 95% of more on their of their entire go-to-market budget on demand capture and demand conversion, and no sense of demand creation. And we'll be able to see that data across a large scale of companies and hopefully instigate some change.
1: Man, thanks so much. I, I really do appreciate it. I think there are a lot of people out there that are really chomping at the bit to see what you got cooking in terms of this because I, I know it's going to be a banger.
0: Yeah, we're excited about it. Yeah, for sure. Can you share any details? Sure, let's get into it. Number one, we've built a new operating model. So most companies will use the demand waterfall of 2012 or 2017, which is effectively MQL SQL SQO one, or in the new one, MQA SQL SQO one still operating in an overall blended funnel. That's typically built around doing outbound sales to people that don't ask to buy. Now, we've created a new operating model that doesn't operate in one funnel. It allows you to operate as an integrated revenue team. It breaks demand creation, demand capture and demand conversion into separate things. We're not using MQL, SQL, S Q O anymore. We're using account activation, account conversion, hero pipeline and closed one changes the entire metrics and connects the sales and marketing and go-to-market teams around a standardized definition of pipeline that only high-quality deals that close consistently will reach. We've taken that data model and now built it into a database. We can take existing companies' data, transform it into our data model, and run standardized analytics across those companies, which we call revenue diagnostics. We've done about 15 of those in the past 90 days, are starting to already see clear patterns and trends in the data. We're soon going to be able to develop standardized benchmarks that companies can use to that, not only look at their KPIs and whether they're going up and down, but understanding how they're performing quarter over quarter against other types of companies. We find consistent types of discoveries over time, like content syndication leads when performed this way, close at 0.1% from lead to customer, which means that you need 1,000 quote unquote leads at $50 to $100 a lead to win one customer. And that doesn't include all the wasted SDR time and sales team time talking to the other 999 people that don't buy It becomes by far the worst performing lowest ROI program in the entire company, but gets propped up and justified by an influenced revenue model that says it's the best performing program based on first touch attribution. And so the revenue diagnostics, I believe, is something that companies should run every single quarter using a third party that looks at their data. It's almost like running an audit of your financials. It's like we need a third party independent company to come in here and run our data in a standardized way and tell us what they see, and then we can compare it. To what we see and have a discussion about what we think we should do. But I am certain after doing 15 that the reports that those companies and executives look at that they get from their team versus the reports and companies that my team builds are fundamentally entirely different, almost tell the exact opposite story.
1: I would guess so. And that sounds awesome. That's the type of shakeup that we need in conversations, you know, because a lot of times you, you look at something and yeah, it can look this way. But also what we're actually seeing is the exact opposite. And it's it's really hard conversation to have when the thing that you know is 100% incorrect appears on paper as though it is.
0: It's the problem with companies that say they need to be, quote unquote, data-driven. Every company looks at data, but how you look at the data and how you analyze it will then drive, you can basically tell whatever story you wanna tell. You could buy different tools to be able to create the data to tell a whole different story based on it. So it's not just about being data-driven, it's being aligned as a company about what data we look at and how we use that data to make decisions so that a lot of people could come to generally the same conclusion based on the data, which is entirely not what happens today. You got some people thinking, hey, this definitely doesn't work. You got other people that typically run the programs and are biased to think those work or then building reports about how much they work. It's really like looking at data and then looking at data is very different than how you look at the data to come to conclusions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Chris Walker, this has been amazing. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate you coming on. Your guest number one. I think we did pretty well. We did all right. Yeah,
0: I would say so. We were on fire there for a
1: minute. (laughs) Yeah, man how can people find you
0: as if they don't know who you are already? Yeah, feel free to check out the B2B Revenue Vitals podcast on Apple, Spotify or any other places where podcasts are published. You could also feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. I've uh, I'd like to say that I've been on fire on LinkedIn recently. So feel free to check that out coming out.
1: I might agree with that.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I don't think it's because I'm that special. I think it's because I come to LinkedIn with a different approach, which is that a majority of my posts now are based on real data and not solely my opinion. And I think that that is something that the market needs a lot as well
1: yeah agree man thank you so much for being here we will definitely see you around cannot wait to see all the things that you guys have planned thanks again man
0: thanks for everything